Well, perhaps you all can answer this question. In school, what's the most dreaded color to see on your homework? Red. 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 Nobody <laughs> likes red. And red just has, you know, you know when you see red, that that means you've done something wrong, you know, something's been corrected, you shouldn't have wrote that, this, you know, this should have been done differently. And actually now, I don't know if it's for the same for Laurel, but Katie and many of her coworkers actually use different colors now, like you know, green and purple, to like grade homework because red has such a negative connotation. You see, and it's just like, oh, there's red on my paper, and even the grade circled in red. It's kind of like, oh, like you know, not perfect. You know, <laughs> what I don't know what color it'd be if it was perfect green, maybe or something. But um, when you handed in a paper, you knew that it was going to be judged and scrutinized. Your teacher was going to read over it. They're going to find every mistake. They're going to mark all the things wrong and circle things and underline things and make little comments. No, that shouldn't be here. You should have said this earlier. This should be clear. And that faithful day when you get your, everyone's, you know, so time to get your papers back. And everyone's like, oh, you know, you're, you're antsy for the paper to get handed to you. You look, look right at the top. What's the grade? Oh, you know, it wasn't quite perfect. And you start going through it. And you don't want, what you don't want to see is a whole bunch of red um, throughout your paper. That's the last thing you want to see. And today, as we are continuing to prepare for Easter in this series called For You, Jesus says um, that everything he goes through in these final three chapters of the Gospel according to Luke was for you. We learn that he was prepared to die for you, for each of us. And we learn that he was betrayed and arrested and denied and mocked for you, for each of us, for me. And this evening, we're going to see how Jesus is put on trial, and then he is condemned for you, for all of us. But as we will see, there's no reason he should be condemned. He hands his paper in, and it comes back with not a red mark on it, or at least the red marks on it are kind of like bogus red marks. They're not, um, they shouldn't be on there at all. Um, but, and yet, he is sentenced to his death. And the big question this passage answers is, it's this. How does God let guilty rebels go free? How does God let guilty rebels go free? That's the big question this passage answers. How does God let guilty rebels go free? And Jesus goes through four trials in this passage. His paper, you know, the, his life is sort of like the paper he's handing in. It goes through three trials. Three teachers are kind of like look over it. And we're going to see that they're trying to prove him guilty. But in fact, all these trials show that he's innocent. And we'll cover all four of them. Then we'll answer our big question. The first one is in front of the Sanhedrin. We'll learn what that means in a little bit. But Jesus knows he's going to suffer and die. And he also knows that all of this is part of God's plan. He, he's told his disciples during the celebration of Passover, I'm going to die for you. Just like the Passover lamb was sacrificed so that you could be saved from death, I'm going to be sacrificed. I'm going to die to save you from death. And just like God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt long ago, now Jesus' death is going to rescue them from a new kind of slavery, slavery to sin and Satan and death, so that they can now serve God once again. And we learned in our first series when we talked about, or our first message in this series about the Passover, this was an Israelite festival where, God, where God's people remembered how God saved them um, from death long ago. Because God said, Egypt was refusing to let Israel go, and so God said, I'm going to pass through the land, and every firstborn in every house is going to die, except for the houses that uh, kill a lamb and then take its blood and smear it on the doorpost. All those houses were going to be spared from death. But it wasn't just any lamb, because this lamb, God said, needed to be spotless. It needed to be perfect with no blemish on it. And Jesus said that his death is going to be like this Passover lamb. His death is going to save others from death. And these trials 
prove that he's a spotless lamb, that he's innocent. There isn't a blemish on his record. He's the spotless lamb that's going to his death to save others from death. And after the Passover that Jesus celebrates with his disciples, he goes, takes them to this grove of olive trees, the Garden of Gethsemane, to pray. And it's there that Judas, one of his closest disciples, brings this crowd of the religious leaders and the temple guards to come and arrest him, um, and they take him to the high priest's house. And that's where we left off last time. And other accounts tell us that throughout the night, Jesus is questioned. They're trying to like gather all this evidence against him, and he's questioned throughout the night. But our uh, chapter, our account, picks up in verse 66 when it says this. It says, when day came, you know, questioning throughout the night, and now when day came, the assembly of the elders of, of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And this group of people is called the Sanhedrin. And uh, the Sanhedrin is this group of Israel's religious leaders, and the chairman of it was the high priest. And throughout the night, the evidence is being presented against Jesus, um, but they can't make an official verdict until daytime. They can't meet during the night and come up with official verdicts. They had to wait till day in order to do that. And so, therefore, day comes, the Sanhedrin gets together to give out their official verdict, and the matter on the table is this. If you're the Christ, tell us. And in the Old Testament, God promised he would send a king to rescue his people. And Christ is the New Testament word for that king. And they want to know, are you this person? Are you this king that God has sent? And Jesus responds in verse 67. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Because Jesus knows this is a rigged trial. He knows that they came into it. And they've already decided the verdict in their head. They want to get rid of him. They've plotted this against him. So this trial is like a formality. It's all rigged. And so they, he knows they're not interested in the truth. Their goal is to get rid of him. And they've been plotting that since day one when he entered Jerusalem um, on a Sunday. And it's been evidenced by the fact that they came and arrested him at night instead of in broad daylight in the open while he was in the temple every single day. But they made up this whole plan so they could get him at night, in, not in front of the people. So Jesus is saying, basically, I know there isn't any use in trying to convince you, and so I'm not going to answer it. But then he goes on in verse 69, and he says, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And the Son of Man was this figure. Jesus, there's all these titles that are getting applied to Jesus, and he's applying to himself. Son of Man is a figure in the Old Testament that was going to have this everlasting kingdom. They're going to have authority, and their kingdom was going to um, have no end. And, uh, this is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to be seated, seated at the right hand of power um, by God. And Jesus is claiming he's soon going to have a seat of honor right next to God, a seat of honor and authority and power right next to God. You know, imagine that, me saying, like, you know, in a couple days, I'm going to be sitting next to President Trump. And be like, okay, weirdo, like, you know, I'm going to be the vice president. Jesus is like saying, I'm going to be seated right next to God. And so he's saying, well, you guys think you're the ones judging me, but in actuality, soon I'm going to be the one sitting in the seat of honor and authority, and I'm going to be judging you. And so the council asks, they see the implications. Are you the son of God then? You're going to sit next to God? Are you the son of God then? Is that what you're saying? And they're seeing what uh, the inference from what he's saying. And he replies, well, you say that I am. And Jesus doesn't give an outright yes, but he also doesn't <clears throat> deny it. He, you know, saying I'm the son of God, they, he knows they just totally misunderstand it. They don't, they're not seeing in the categories he's seeing, and they're going to misunderstand what he says. So he doesn't give them an outright yes, but he doesn't deny it. But that gives them 
enough to then say, well, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. He hasn't denied that he is the Son of God. And to the council, Jesus made a claim that no human should make, he, that he's going to sit at God's right hand, sharing his power and authority and honor. Nobody shares that spot. It all belongs to God, and no human should claim that. So in their minds, Jesus is making himself equal or near equal to God. They probably wouldn't have thought, well, he's saying he's God in the flesh. They probably are just hearing, like, he's basically making himself equal with God. You can't do that. But the irony is that Jesus is telling nothing but the truth. He's on trial, and they're saying, like, is this who you are? And he's saying, he's not denying it. He's not saying, all right, yes, but he's not denying it. And so um, he knows that's who he is. And he, the only thing he's guilty of is not denying who they're accusing him of being. He's saying, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, I, you've said so. That's, that is who I am. And so he's condemned for not denying who he truly is. And with this, we move to the trial before Pilate, the second trial, um, starting in chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. And the Sanhedrin, they have to bring Jesus before Pilate because the Sanhedrin is a religious council um, for Israel. And Israel is under Roman occupation. So they're not really running the show. Rome is the one that runs the show. And so if they want to, what they want is Jesus to be condemned to death. But they're a religious council. They don't have the power to do that. They have to get the government involved. And so they take Jesus to Pilate. Um, and that's the only way they're going to get um, him uh, to be executed. But in order to do that, they need to bring charges before Pilate that are going to make sense to him. Pilate's not going to care that Jesus is claiming something that he shouldn't be claiming, you know, and that, like, interferes with their beliefs about God. He's going to be like, I don't care. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm Roman. I don't even believe in your God. So... Like, get over it. Um, so they need to come up with an issue that uh, Pilate's going to care about. And the accusation they bring is in verse 2. It says this. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And as I said, the nation of Israel is under Roman occupation. So Pilate's ears are going to perk up when he hears that somebody's been saying, well, you don't need to pay taxes to Caesar. That's going to make his ears perk up. And it's going to perk up when he's like, and this guy's claiming to be the new king of Israel because Rome had put in place their own kind of puppet king. We'll hear about him later, Herod. Um, and so if somebody is saying, like, you know, I'm going to boot this guy off the throne or I'm going to boot Caesar off the throne, that's going to you know, make Pilate's ears perk up. That's rebelling against the empire, and so he's not going to like that. And so Pilate asks him, are you, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' answer, again, doesn't give a straightforward yes, but he also doesn't deny it. He replies, you've, you've said so. But Pilate has seen revolutionaries before. He knows how someone who wants to overthrow the Roman Empire acts and talks. And we, he's kind of like, this guy, this doesn't seem like a revolutionary. And we're kind of getting the short version of his trial. We get like one question. I'm sure Pilate asked some more questions than that. And so his verdict in verse 4 is this. Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. And the people are insisting that Jesus is up to no good. He's been stirring up people all over Israel, all the way from Galilee, all the way to Jerusalem, where we're at now. And that in learning, oh, ooh, Galilee, this kind of brings Pilate um, to our third trial in verses 20, uh, chapter 23, verse 6 through 12, because upon hearing this accusation that he's stirring up people even in Galilee, Pilate's like, ooh, well, if he's a Galilean, then I can send him over to Herod, who's in charge of that place. And this isn't, 
Um, there's kind of a lot of Herods in the Bible. It can get really confusing. Um, the first one we hear about is Herod the Great, and he lives right around the time uh, that Jesus is born. He actually comes out of power shortly after Jesus is born, but he's the one um, that gets scared because he hears that a king has been born, um, and he's like, well, he's going to take over my throne, and so he's the one that gets uh, all the kids under two years of age killed in Bethlehem. That's Herod the Great. This is one of Herod's son, Herod Antipas. Um, and after Herod dies in, in 4 AD, uh, he breaks up his kingdom among four sons, and this is one of his sons, and he's in charge of the Galilee region. And it, the walk from where Pilate is over to Herod would have been like 10 minutes over to the palace um, that he's staying in. And Herod, he's excited to have Jesus before him. He's like, oh, Jesus is coming. This is exciting news because Jesus is like a local celebrity back in Galilee. So now it's like, well, cool, a local celebrity coming and I get to uh, get some entertainment, basically. He wants Jesus to show him a sign, which means he wants them to perform a miracle. It's like he wants to put on a, put, you know, show some party tricks here, Jesus. Like you're a local celebrity. I've heard all this stuff you can do. So let's, let's see what you're made of. And, but though Herod questioned him at length, Jesus just doesn't say anything. He doesn't, he's not going to go into Herod's weird entertainment thing. And the council of religious leaders is just laying all these accusations um, before Herod about Jesus. And when Jesus doesn't do as Herod wants to, Herod joins his soldiers in mocking Jesus and looking down on them. Basically, he thinks Jesus is a joke and is beneath him. Like, oh, I've heard all this great stuff about this guy. And, you know, what, who is? This isn't anything. There's nothing impressive about him. And so they take some fancy clothes and they dress Jesus like he's royalty and then they send him back to Pilate. And though Pilate and Herod have been at odds, this interaction kind of makes them um, friends from then on. And that's kind of, you know, just, just Luke mentioning that. It's kind of this interesting thing because Luke says, a lot of people credit Luke as a great historian. You know, he just has all these little historical tidbits that he weaves through. Why else would he say that? Unless it, you know, actually happened. He just has these little historical tidbits. Um, but Pilate, he's trying to get rid of this problem on his hands, but it doesn't work. And so when Jesus returns, he goes under his fourth trial, um, which is trial with Pilate, part two. And Pilate calls the Sanhedrin council together, and he tells them in verse 14, he says this, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent them back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate's verdict is that Jesus is innocent. Herod's verdict is that Jesus is innocent. And Pilate is hoping, uh, maybe I'll just have this guy whipped, and then the Sanhedrin will be satisfied. And verse 19, um, 18 and 19 tells us their response. It says, But they all cry out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for mur murder. And the Gospel according to Matthew tells us that at Passover, Pilate had this custom that he started where he would release a prisoner of the people's choosing. And here they ask for a man named Barabbas to be released. And the uh, passage tells us that Barabbas, he's an actual rebel. He's an actual revolutionary. He's actually doing the things that the Sanhedrin are accusing Jesus of doing. He's trying to start an insurrection. He murdered somebody. He's trying to get take over Israel, take over Jerusalem and boot the Romans out. And he was in prison for trying to start this revolt. And this is exactly um, what the Sanhedrin say Jesus is doing. He's trying to stir up the people. He's and Barabbas actually was trying to stir up the people, but Jesus is just going around teaching people about God's kingdom. 
And Pilate tries again to have Jesus released, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! And crucifixion is how Romans took care of rebels and revolutionaries. You, you know, we, have, we all probably know what a cross looks like, you know, T-shaped pole thing um, that you would nail somebody to with all their clothes off, usually after whipping them and flogging them, and so they're all bloody and they're naked, and so you're laying, you're up on this pole of shame, and you put it in a public place so that everyone can see, like, this is what happens to you when you rebel against Rome. Do you want to end up that way? Don't rebel against Rome. And so what they want to do, they're trying to convince Pilate, this guy is a rebel, he's a revolutionary, and so you should crucify him just like all rebels, revolutionaries should be crucified. Verse 22 gives Pilate's response. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found no, in him no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. And Pilate's saying, Well, Jesus is innocent. He's not guilty of being a rebel. He's done no crime deserving death. But the crowd continues to demand that he be crucified. And finally Pilate gives in. He gives in to their demands. He decides it'd be better for this innocent person to die than to have a riot on his hands of all these Jewish people. The big question this passage answers is this. How does God let guilty rebels go free? Verse 25 gives us the key. Verse 25 says this. He, meaning Pilate, released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Barabbas, the guilty rebel, is released, and Jesus, the innocent one, is delivered to death. They almost like switch places. Jesus took this guilty rebel's place. Jesus was tried as a rebel and condemned as a rebel, even though he's innocent. And what's more, he is tried and condemned as a rebel against the king when he is the true king. He's being put on trial for not denying who, who he truly is. And the big question is, how does God let guilty rebels go free? And the answer is this. Guilty rebels go free because Jesus takes their place. Guilty rebels go free because Jesus takes their place. Because the truth is, each of us is guilty of rebellion against God. We're all guilty rebels. We've all defied his authority in our lives. We've all broken the laws of his kingdom. We've all chosen to live for our own glory and honor rather than his. We've all wanted to sit on the throne and call the shots rather than God being on the throne of our lives. We've all said no to God when he's asked us to do things and we've wanted to run life our own way. And this makes us all guilty rebels. We should all be declared guilty and sentenced to death. But Jesus goes, undergoes the trial that each of us should have to undergo. Jesus receives the verdict that we should all receive. Jesus has given the sentence we should all be given. We can be freed from the penalty of our rebellion because Jesus takes our place. He takes our place in the trial, in the charges, and in the sentence. Jesus can be the Passover lamb saving others from death because he is spotless. He turned his paper of his life in um, and it came back with no red ink on it. The only thing that could be circled was you know, his name at the top. You know, son of God, Son of Man, uh, the Christ, uh, King of the Jews. Like That's the only thing that could be found wrong in his paper. Pilate found nothing wrong with his paper and the only thing Herod found wrong was that he didn't write the story of his life the way Herod wanted them to, entertaining him um, with party tricks and miracles. And an innocent Jesus is tried and condemned to death. And because of that, guilty rebels can go free. Many have called this the great exchange. There's this great exchange that Jesus takes our sin 
um, but we take on his righteousness. And so what do we exchange when Jesus uh, dies in our place? Well, first, we exchange our sinful record for his spotless record. We exchange our sinful record for his spotless record. Everyone is going to die and stand before God in his law court. If we handed in the paper of our life, it would come back covered in red ink, and we would, all of us would receive a failing grade. God would see our sinful record and declare us guilty rebels. He would you know, look at it and be like, there's enough evidence here to obviously call you a guilty rebel. And so that's, we'd all get a failing grade. And in God's kingdom, prison is called hell, and that's where we would all go. That's the sentence we would all be given. But we get to exchange our sinful record for Jesus' spotless record. The blood of the spotless lamb, it's kind of like you had all these mistakes in your paper, and the blood of the spotless lamb was like white out, going over all those mistakes, and then replacing it with what should have been there in the first place. We get Jesus' spotless record. If you place your faith in Christ, you don't need to stand trial before God, because the verdict has already been declared innocent, righteous, and you're covered with Jesus' spotless record. And so first, we exchange our sinful record for his spotless record. Second, we exchange eternal death for eternal life. We exchange eternal death for eternal life. First, we exchange our spotless record, our sinful record for his spotless record. We exchange eternal death for eternal life. Because we not only get Jesus' spotless record, but we also get the reward for his spotless record. Because Jesus goes to his death because he's taking our sentence for our record as guilty rebels. And death in scripture, it's physical. Jesus is going to suffer a physical death. But there's also spiritual death. And both come because of our separation from God. God is the giver of life. And if we're separated from him, we experience death. You know, a lamp only has power if it's plugged into the power source. And when we unplug from God, we're unplugged from the giver of life. And eternal death is the sentence that each of us deserves for, uh, for being guilty rebels. But when Jesus goes to his death on the cross, he experiences the curse because of our sin. He experiences being forsaken by God. We'll see that next week. And he takes the penalty for our sinful record so that we can have the reward for his sinless record. Jesus accepts the charges against us and the sentence that we deserve for them so that we can exchange eternal death for eternal life. And the truth is that Jesus took the punishment for your sin. Each of us deserves death. You deserve death. I deserve death. You deserve to be cursed. I deserve to be cursed. You deserve to be forsaken. I deserve to be forsaken. We all deserve condemnation, the condemnation of a guilty rebel before God. But because of Jesus, we can receive life and righteousness and freedom and blessing and hope and love, all these things that we don't deserve. And one song puts it this way, All things in me call for my rejection, and all things in you plead my acceptance. Because we have no case to plead before God, but all of what Jesus did pleads our acceptance that we can be righteous and innocent because of Jesus. And this should lead to great joy. This is the greatest gift that we could ever be given. We were on death row, but through Jesus we're pardoned and we're reconciled to God. But there's two cases of unbelief that kill our joy in this wonderful news. And the first is, we don't believe our sin is that bad. We don't believe our sin is that bad, and that kills our, the joy of this wonderful news. We don't believe our sin is that bad. Because we can easily think, well, my situation isn't really that bad. And we can think that our record isn't as bad as what the Bible says. Sure, there's lots of people who uh, have their record covered with red ink, 
Hitler, you know, December, September 11th terrorists, all the people involved in school shootings, of course their record's going to be just blotted with red ink and they're going to get a failing grade. But my paper would have less red ink on it than theirs, so I should get a passing grade. Like, I feel like if I turn the record of my life in, it'd be okay. I'm not as bad as other people. But I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments. And God gave those commandments um, to his people to show them how they're supposed to act. And if you want a spotless record, all you have to do is keep those ten rules. Just ten commandments, just got to keep those your whole life. And so that should be pretty easy, not too hard. Just ten of them. I mean, that's you know, less than how much it takes to drive. But if, you, <laughs> but if you went through all ten of those and reflected on them, you discover that you've broken nearly, if not all of them, through the course of your life, and probably this year, um, if you, I mean, if you're a really awesome person, maybe you haven't broken them this year, you might have broken them all this month if you just go through those. So take the first one, for example. We won't go through all of them, uh, because we, but if we did go through all of them, it wouldn't be to make us feel bad. It would be to see this was the depth of my sin, and now look at the joy of being saved from all that. But take just the first one. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That means that no person or thing should be more important to you than God. Nothing should be a greater priority. Nothing should be more valuable. Nothing should be a higher authority. God should always be the number one priority in your life. Your only goal in all of your life should be to worship and serve and please Him. Your greatest desire should be to do what He says, and you always do it. And so what do you think your longest streak of consecutive days, thinking only about God and what He wants you to do and nothing else? What's like your longest streak? I don't even know if I have days. Maybe it's like hours? <laughs> Maybe minutes? You know, like what's the, how many days in a row have you thought only about what God wants you to do and you did that? And the truth is, if we handed in a record of our life, every single day would have red ink on it because we're constantly putting other things and other people, and especially ourselves, before God. And just this fact is enough to condemn us as guilty rebels. Because if he's supposed to be the king on the throne, and we're constantly trying to push him off the throne so we can be on it and run our lives, then that's the definition of what a rebel is. They're trying to get the king off the throne and run it themselves and set up their own kingdom. And if you continue through the Ten Commandments you'd find that you break more of God's laws than you keep. And the more we recognize this, the more it should fill us with joy. Like, there shouldn't be a dread and a guilt because we should say, like, wow, that's how much Jesus has done for me. That's what I've been freed of. Because when we know how much we've been freed from, then we'll love our Savior even more. Because we'll think Jesus is kind of a wimpy Savior if we don't think he saved us from that much. But if we recognize and know how much we've been saved from, then we'll know how powerful and great our Savior is. And the first case of unbelief is that we don't believe our sin is that, that bad. And the second case of unbelief is that we don't believe Jesus really gives us a spotless record. We don't believe Jesus really gives us his spotless record. First is we don't believe our sin is that bad. And the second is we don't believe Jesus really gives us his spotless record. Because we keep acting like we need to prove ourselves to God and prove ourselves to other people. We need to correct all the mistakes on our paper to get this passing grade. But Jesus covers them all. We get his record now. We don't need to prove ourselves to God. And one of the symptoms um, that you believe your sin isn't that bad and that Jesus hasn't given you a spotless record is that you can't handle it when people point out something you've done wrong. If someone circles a mistake in your life with red pen 
become defensive, or you, you go to blaming others. You blame them, or you blame so-and-so, or you blame, or I'm tired, I had a bad day at work. You blame something else besides you. And as one author puts it, you activate your inner lawyer to plead your case. You need, you need to get off the hook for this crime and prove your innocence, because you can't handle being guilty of something and, and <coughs> having that sentence put over you. And I'm especially bad at this. When Katie points out something that I did that hurt her, I turn to self-defense and blame right away. That's my natural reaction. I want to argue my case and how and show how I did nothing wrong. I, and I make excuses. I bring up times when she's done the same thing. So, oh, you, so you did it. So that must mean it's okay for me to do it. And I give reasons for why I did what I did. And so all these things, you know, get me off, get me off the hook. But if I believe that my record is really bad and that Jesus gives me his spotless record before God, then I could easily admit that what I did was wrong and I wouldn't need to defend it. I wouldn't need to be scared of somebody finding mistakes and sin in my life because like, well, I know it's there. Um, God knows it's there. And that's why Jesus died. And so why am I afraid if you find me out? God knows all my sin. He's forgiven me. So why would it be such a big deal for Katie to see my sin? And that's something to think about. Like, why is it such a big deal for us to have other people see we've done something wrong? If God knows it all, and Jesus died this horrible death in our place to free us from it, and we've been forgiven. If we really believe that, why would it matter you know, if Katie tells me, hey, you're kind of harsh there. Why in the world would I even need to defend myself? You know, you're right. I, I was. Like, I know I'm very sinful, and so I'm sorry that I was wrong. And one of the marks of, a, of Christian maturity is an ability to recognize and confess our sin. And that's why we confess silently, confess our sin silently every week right before the Lord's Supper because um, we need to learn to be able to confess our sin. We confess it silently to God and then the Lord's Supper we're getting to say like, and I know that I've been forgiven for this. I know Jesus' death has covered this. That his blood has been the white out across all of my sins and so we confess it and then we receive the forgiveness. And that's why our GFGs, our, or sorry, Gospel Fluency Groups, that's the short version for them, confess sin every week. That's because we read the scripture and we have to confess Man, here's things in this past I'm not believing. Here's things in this past I'm not obeying. And we confess it. But then we also um, get to look at the gospel in those passages because we say, like, well, this is who God is. And this is the good news I'm hearing from these passages as well. And, it's, and this is all for our good because the more we know how bad our sin is, the more we know how good our Savior is. And this week, so this week, something you can try to do is when someone points out something you did wrong, Instead of defending yourself or blaming, try owning it instead. Instead of activating your inner lawyer, say, you're right, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me? Well, those are like some of the hardest words for us to say because we all know, man, my life doesn't stand up. And so somehow I have to make it stand up and prove myself that it, it's okay. Like there's not enough red ink on here to make me fail. And so you know, saying, you're right, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me? That's some of the hardest sentences you'll ever say. And then rest in the fact that your sinful record has been exchanged for Jesus' spotless record, that even though you were wrong, even though you had asked forgiveness, God's covered that if you've trusted in Christ. Jesus was put on trial as a rebel. He was condemned as a rebel. That's the same trial and condemnation we should all receive. Yet, like Barabbas, we are guilty rebels set free once we place our trust in Jesus. We're saved from death because the spotless lamb died in our place. And that's the good news of Christianity, that God lets guilty rebels go free because he sent Jesus to take our place. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for wonderful good news that if we place our faith in Jesus, we do not need to stand trial before you because if any of us had to, we would never, ever stand up. You would find every single mistake, every single sin, every failure, and we would be condemned for it. And yet, before your throne, we could stand righteous and spotless and free because of what Jesus has done. So thank you for bringing us into um, your presence and into your family, into your love because of what Jesus has done. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.